Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. Last week... Nick Davis and I'm a professor of film and gender studies and lit at Northwestern and I'm a contributing editor at Film Comment. Uh, Michael Koreski, editorial director of Film Society at Lincoln Center. I'm um, Gira Shambu. I teach at Canisius College in Buffalo, New York. And I revisited the filmmakers that first fanned the flames of our cinephilia. Now we return to the second half of our conversation. The other person I'd thought about was actually around the same time as Jane Campion, so it wasn't really later. Mm. Kind of defy the spirit of your question. That's fine. Um, <laughs> just because we've been talking so much about auteurs and some ambivalence about that concept. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to take a film studies elective class in my public high school that was brand new that year as a sophomore. Oh, wow. And we had to give a presentation as a filmmaker of our choosing. And there was like a whole royal rumble about who got to be Spielberg and, you know. Um, and I wanted to be Hector Babenko <laughs> and, and it was mostly to like, you know, there was a big part of me that wanted to have a reason to supply people why I kept watching kiss the spider woman. Cause yeah. I suspected there were other reasons that I wasn't wanting to lead with. And that movie was so in love with movies that it made me curious to see what else he would make. And so that was the first time I deliberately watched a bunch of one person's movies in a row to give this presentation. And I'll underline not just about, but as we were supposed to do. So thank God there's no footage of that. But <laughs> wait, so what was your, what was your Hector Babenco? Like, it involved after? me learning like two sentences in Portuguese and okay. being unbelievably smug with my accomplishment. <laughs> did you, did you grow out a beard? I sh in 10th grade, I should have. Yeah, yeah. It actually took me that long to get this. Oh, no. Um, but against all the kind of auteur bias of talking about directors, I found it so kind of endearing and enlivening that I, so I'd watched Against the Spider-Woman many times. I would never have guessed that person made Pichot. Um, I would never have guessed that either of those people would make Ironweed, which is a movie I think kind of fundamentally doesn't work, but has one really amazing performance by Meryl Streep that's not much like her other performances even. Um, then I watched a play in the Fields of the Lord, which is incredibly hard to even acquire now, which I think is a pretty good movie in which no one is particularly good in it. And... And so watching somebody seem like an almost completely different filmmaker from project to project, and then doing what you were talking about with Bergman, reading a little bit of not only his own writing, but other things he cared about that weren't always movies at different sort of moments of emergency in Brazil. I still think harbor this joy that we can watch people hit the nail on the head sometimes and fall down sometimes and try to make a movie that's not one that we would imagine they might be good at, or maybe they even feel that way. And especially at a moment in school of just learning to be okay with your own hits and misses and mm -hmm. going out on limbs that you know, you're probably not the person to do X that moved me a lot. And so it has meant that kind of idolizing directors as I do often do has not felt the same to me as their signature has to be stable or you have to know from the first frame that's a Babenko movie. Like you would never achieve that, right? So yeah, he loomed large at an early moment. I actually watched Kiss of the Spider Woman again recently for the first time since I was a teenager. Um, even though I know the musical adaptation very well. So I'm actually more familiar with the Candor and Ebb play musical version than the movie at this point. So I was excited to revisit the film based on that. And um 
I was actually quite impressed by how not play-like it felt. Mm. You know, it's it's basically a chamber drama, literally in a prison <laughs> prison cell. Um, and I know that it opens up with these Sonia Braga sequences, which are these fantasy movies within the movie. But even within the the William Hurt and Raul Julia scenes, it felt so expansive. And, and, and I'm so impressed with both of their performances. It, it's the kind of film that, even if it were to come out today, would be considered quite daring. Mm-hmm. Mm. One idea for a future podcast. Um, I've always thought it interesting that people who don't get a filmmaker or don't, don't like a filmmaker that many cinephiles like have very poor reasons for not liking them. Yes. In the sense that you stub your toe on something and something that others would see as incredibly minor and that kind of prevents you from seeing, seeing you know, so many other things about the filmmaker, but you can't help it. And we all have those affective kind of blocks. Yes. And so often, um, you know, if it's a filmmaker that's liked by many people, somebody not liking that filmmaker doesn't actually teach me anything about that filmmaker. And so it's, it's but, but we all have those, all of us have those blocks against certain filmmakers. So I just kind of find that interesting uh, how they can sound so trivial. There are, those objections can sound so incredibly trivial and uninsightful, but, and yet I think we all cinephiles have them and make them. Right. Well, and sometimes the things that, that keep you from, admiring appreciating or accepting a filmmaker are just completely personal things that have nothing to do with that filmmaker's actual work like maybe i would come out and say based on the two abel ferrara films that i've seen that i don't like abel ferrara but i have not actually seen his filmography and the things that keep me from wanting to watch them are i don't gravitate towards uber masculine films i don't care about catholic guilt you know things like (laughs) that it's also i don't really like paul schrader movies as a director um yeah me neither it's just so it's just that kind of really heavy handed i don't i don't gravitate towards like gritty urban films or urban as in like you know like when people are really talking about the great 70s new york films i'm interested and i like some of them very much but it's nothing that i value in and of itself Mm. so i don't know if that makes me a kind of a bad cinephile. Oh, no, I think we, I think we all have those, and and I personally find Tarantino to be so much more masculine as a filmmaker than Ferrara. Yeah. Ferrara is a very critical filmmaker to me, and yeah. so his films are always questioning and doubting, and which shows how little I know. That's my oh, no, point. No, See, no, 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 it's it's, it's but but and, and Tarantino, I actually don't find masculine. Right. I find his. I find his. He wants to be. I find that he makes certain films because he cares about this, his audience. It's like really, really like fanboy masculine audience. But I don't think he is that. I think he changes himself to be that, which is why you see so many great female characters in his films. Why you see such um, almost a Manelli like uh, awareness of color and formation in his films. I mean, I think that he, he he's a closet. Is what I'm saying. He's a closet filmmaker. <laughs> he's a closet case. <laughs> You cannot accuse Quentin Tarantino of being a closet case. Closet case filmmaker. I don't know anything about his, what he does in the bedroom. So, Garish, I know there's another filmmaker who's quite dear to you. Yes, and that would be um, Brian De Palma. And um, so the story of Brian De Palma and me is that <laughs> you were shopping <laughs> that for that finally revealed to the world is um, <laughs> I have a very, very weird relationship to uh, to De Palma's films because um, when I grew when I was growing up in India, most American films were banned 
Uh, You couldn't import them because they wanted to protect the local industry. And so uh, very few, I'd seen very few American films. Uh, But I read Pauline Kael's very famous Dress to Kill review. And uh, it's it's such an incredible piece of writing. So evocative. And this evocative uh, nature uh, was actually very important to me because the the review had to do all the work for evoking the film to me because I can actually see it myself. So for for a few years, I, I read whatever I could about De Palma. I read the Dress to Kill review over and over again, committed it to memory because I couldn't see the film. And then when I finally moved to the States, uh, right after my undergraduate uh, degree, I got my uh, graduated, I, I bought a battered uh, old TV for like 10 bucks from Goodwill. And I rented a little VCR from a, from a little Vietnamese grocery store. And there was also uh, a little video shop and, and, and watched Dress to Kill and Blow Out and uh, Carrie. Yeah. Uh, and th- those were my first experiences of De Palma, like on one single day watching all of this. And I had already imagined those films in certain ways, and they were not the films that I had imagined. Mm. I mean, how could they be? Um, so it was a very kind of very powerful <laughs> episode uh, in my life. But um, and thinking back to why I, I was attracted to De Palma so much, I would say um, um, I've always wondered about this: like, why are cinephiles cinephiles? Mm. Um, I, I love to read. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I like literature. I like poetry. I like music. But I'm not obsessed with those mediums like I am with cinema. And why is that? What is it about cinema that, that draws me specifically? And so cinephiles are actually a very small percentage of people in the world. They're extremely small, very, very small. But something does unite them. And, and, and what is it? So um, De Palma's films were to me like looking in the mirror of my cinephile identity. And they kind of showed me uh, why I was a cinephile. I didn't realize that right away, but over, over the years. And I think what they do is they do something that's very highly medium specific. And so uh, all of those things that I love about the medium, like not just the documentary capture, but also things like um, a play with visual composition, uh, montage, and all of, these, all of these other things that no other mediums uh, really do the way cinema does. De Palma's films do those things and not only do those things, they, they kind of crank those things up to, to 11. Mm. They foreground those things. They play with those things. That is the subject of those films. And so in a way, these films were in a very operatic enacting my own cinephilia as if they were sort of a mirror and I could see them enacting my cinephilia. And I suddenly started to understand why I love, why I love movies and what I love about them. And so there was a profound kind of revelation, like a self-knowledge kind of moment. But of course, the dark side of that is that they also staged something else that cinema is very good at doing, which is displaying women and Mm -hmm. for male consumption. And so I didn't know all that when I first discovered De Palma. I'd gone to engineering school, hadn't had a humanities education of any kind, had not heard the words patriarchy, feminism, objectification, didn't know any of these words. And so I was still very much, you know, in the ideology that I grew up in. And India is one of the most patriarchal countries in the world. And but much later, as I started to learn all this stuff, uh, that complicated my love of De Palma's movies. I even reached a certain dialectical moment when I'm like, I'm turning my back on De Palma. I'm not going to see any more of his movies. And that I had that period. But then I, I realized that was silly because um, I could not reduce De Palma to simply the objectification of women because there were many other valuable things going on in his cinema. Yeah. It's a rich cinema. And so now I have a kind of, I moved past that moment of negation 
to some kind of synthesis. And, and now I feel I have a very deep love of De Palma, but it's also like a not a simple love. It's a complicated love. Yeah. And I think because when I was in film school, the only clip that I would ever that I saw in like multiple classes when we were talking about gender, let's say, was the part of body double with the drill. And so I was like, that guy is a misogynistic creep because that is such a like it is so illustrative of like what movies do to women. But that's the point of the scene. And so if you're just isolating the scene and showing it again and you're losing the critique of that. De Palma is the original um, irony boy alt left guy, I have to say, <laughs> like auteur of American auteurs. He is like the original sort of like pushing left and critiquing the easy mainstream Hollywood liberalism that sort of dominates. Part of that is sometimes more than just dipping a toe into absolute misogyny or scopophilia. <laughs> but let's to chew. Michael, do you want to say something? Uh, I mean, we have we have a whole we had a whole film comment podcast where we spoke yes. at length about De Palma. So I don't want to be redundant, um, but it's just interesting to hear you talk uh, gearish about him because we just have such a similar history with him and such a similar um, response to him. And uh, that kind of complicated love and complicated pleasure is what you know I think makes the cinephile relationship with with the object or with the filmmaker um, important you know, realizing and understanding the, the, the conversation around him and the controversy around him has not diminished my love of him. It's made me maybe even more of a defender over the years. I don't love everything equally, of course. I, uh, I, do, I do believe that De Palma's filmmaking, his aesthetics are so, like you say, foregrounded, but also so uh, readable and legible to um, a viewer of, in, of a young age that it's almost instructive, right? I, I almost felt like I learned, I learned filmmaking from watching Brian De Palma. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about slow motion. I was thinking about split diopter or, or split screen, I thought at the time. I was thinking about gels. I was thinking about camera angles. I was thinking about long takes. I was thinking about all these things at an extremely young age before I even had the words, the vocabulary to describe what those things were. Um, and then realizing later on that he started his career as um, a political filmmaker mm -hmm. made me realize that these things were not being done in a vacuum. Everything he does is a political act, no matter how cheap it may seem, no matter how genre it may seem. You may not like what he's doing or think that he's hypocritical in what he's doing, but he's doing it intentionally. And I'm extremely moved by his work. And out of everybody that we're talking about today, his, he's the filmmaker who I go back to the most. Because he's somebody who I think I'd seen five or six Brian De Palma movies before I had any congealed sense of Brian De Palma or his stature, to especially to people who are most passionate about him. And there was no logic behind the ones I had seen and not seen until the repertory series came around like a year or two ago. And then I wound up seeing like five or six more. But so I feel like I kind of came in diagonally or backwards or something. And I've had all the tensions about gender and stuff you guys are talking about. But the other thing I feel sometimes with him is that totally mad, absorbent cinephilia and just luxuriating in all of its potentials, but then alternating in so many of his movies with what play to me is kind of bare passages for 15 or 20 minutes that feel like we're in an interlude before the thing that fired him up comes back or that, that it often feels like these were the six sequences that obsessively kept him up. 
and the others almost feel offloaded sometimes to to somebody else or to and so it makes me interested in him but it has made me just perplexed um since most of the other like like martin scorsese would be my tarantino of somebody i was quite ardent about and then have like fallen out of love with in most ways but I feel like my favorite Brian De Palma movie is Scorsese's Cape Fear in a way. And it's like all in doing all those things all the time. And like yeah. watching De Palma get so fired up and then kind of bored is both more interesting, but also just kind of frustrating. And so do you ever react to that? Or is that something you, am I, is this my version of the stubbed toe that doesn't sound right? No, no, I, I, I think you're onto something here. And I see it, uh, it, it functions differently for me um, and maybe for Michael as well. So I see De Palma as a very musical filmmaker. He's, and so he's uh, very aware of the rhythm and the flow of a film. And so just like music kind of builds to climaxes and then there's a slow, slow release, like very much like a sonata form in classical music where you have these slow movements and then you have uh, quicker movements. So since his films have so many set pieces, they're kind of the climaxes, but then there's also these passages of release where it's not a set piece and it's like building up to another set piece or it's uh, a period between set pieces. And so um, once I kind of realize that about his films, I actually enjoy those down-tempo moments that are not set pieces. And he's actually doing interesting things. I don't think there are any shots in De Palma's films that are indifferently made. Like he's always aware of what he's shooting, how the camera is moving, and so of the mise-en-scene, what's in the shot. So I find him to be a very precise, careful filmmaker, whether he's doing the set pieces or when, whether he's not doing them. So that's kind of my impression. But I, I don't know what, how Michael would... I know. I, f- I, feel, I feel the same way. I mean, I'm thinking about Dress to Kill the most right now because Me I too. think Dress to Kill is the film that... Prob- yeah, it probably is reflective of most of what you're talking about. It has these operatic crescendos and it has these incredibly scary set pieces and they're very much standouts within the overall framework of the movie. And then, yes, you have this downtime and script wise, I think maybe is the biggest problem there. But when I think about even those down moments, I think about the way that he's shooting and the way he's cutting. And I think it's act for me, it's actually always pretty exciting. I mean, okay. there are scenes of just in between these set pieces, there are scenes of like, say Michael Caine sitting in his office, watching television when he's watching the Phil Donahue show, of course. for instance, about the first transgender yes. uh, celebrity as it were. And the way that it's a split screen with Nancy Allen's character, really just kind of moving around her apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's actually taking extremely banal things of people just milling about their spaces but when he puts them next to each other they become visually exciting Hmm. and there are many layers and of course then there are mirrors there are like double mirrors within split diopters so you're actually Mm -hmm. seeing like three or four images at once Um, that's an extreme example that may be something that you also find visually appealing and there are other scenes like maybe the scenes in the in, in, with Dennis Franz in the police uh, department that are maybe a little less exciting again on the script level. But then I do think about the way he's, he's using foreground and background and the way he's using audio in those scenes. I, for me, there really aren't dull moments, mm. but I think that because of the way his films are structured, like you say, musically, you're more aware of the certain moments being not the heightened moments. And then Within those moments, you're probably more acutely aware of De Palma's occasional tin ear for dialogue. Mm. 
I think that, but I think Dress to Kill feels the most uneven that way. I actually don't think Carrie has any down moments. I think, I think no, that's, that's just true. symphonic beginning to end. Um, I think Blowout is fairly extraordinary beginning to end. I think that there are a lot of mediocre movies by Brian De Palma that probably have a lot of down moments that I'm not thinking of immediately, but mm. um, I know what you mean, but maybe I'm just predisposed to be thrilled throughout I don't know. I also find that some of the down moments, like the Dennis Franz moments, I really like them because a lot of satire is happening in a, in some of those down tempo moments when it's not a set piece. Like I find Franz's characters to be hilarious, so I'm yeah. often laughing a lot when I'm seeing him because his uh, mannerisms, his like New York cop mannerisms, are so exaggerated, and um, he's such a precise actor. He's delivering them with relish. He's like digging into this role that I find it very funny. So th- those work too. Well, even like his because it's just his voice in Scarface like it's like why is that guy in Miami like it's so absurd and yet it's also great yeah I had sort of a it took me a while to get to De Palma mm. because I kept stubbing my toe on misogyny yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I you know you spend time with it and you realize you know there are you know the, the nuances but really I, I I'll never forget I took a class in undergrad that was like about film criticism and we watched a bunch of Hitchcock and then we watched a bunch of De Palma and I was just like what the fuck this guy's just ripping off the, the, the Hitchcock like this sucks what is this it irked me so much and I like every week I was like why do we have to watch this stuff it's bad and now I feel like now that I know more about movies, <laughs> I'm not some little shithead. I'm like, oh, okay, I can see. I see the the, the levels. Well, so. Also, I mean, uh, criticizing referentiality as in and of itself a negative is a very mundane and boring thing to do. So before hey, we... Hey, I was 20, all right? I'm not criticizing you. I'm criticizing <laughs> the whole world because that's what they all do all the time. And mm-hmm. they it's also a way of self-congratulating, right? As, as, a, as a more of a lay cinephile, or not a cinephile, as a lay movie watcher, mm-hmm. um, seeing something and saying, oh, I get the reference. Ugh. But it's filtered. And rolling your eyes at it. But as Nick Pinkerton said, somebody who helped me understand the wonder of... Brian De Palma. De Palma takes Hitchcock and filters it through his own experiences. And that's totally true. And it becomes something that is both this pop culture thing and then intensely personal. It's not just repeating something. Well, of course, I mean, if you just look at his filmography and you actually go in a linear fashion, when he made Sisters, mm-hmm. he was coming off of Greetings and Hi, Mom. He was making Godardian films that were about the politics of the time, mm-hmm. that were about their own construction, that were about scopophilia and cinephilia. He made Sisters as a commentary on Psycho. Mm-hmm. He did it as an experiment. It's a, it's a really thrilling film to watch. It's so well constructed. It's amazing he could do that at that age. But he was making a movie about the form. Yeah. It worked out so well that he did that a lot. But just because he does it a lot doesn't mean that he's forgetting why he did it in the first place. Exactly. He's making exercises. And and just on like at a pure technical and aesthetic level, I don't see how anybody can watch Femme Fatale and yes. not appreciate what he's doing. I mean, on a shot for shot, cut for cut level, that movie is so extraordinary. Uh, it's clearly one of the films of this century course people hate it because it looks like trash or it's it's it seems like trash that's one that has probably more downbeat moments that you were talking about but not for about 75 minutes i mean that movie is so extraordinary for such a long period of time and then it settles a bit when the detective comes in yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean 
I'm that movie astonishes me, and I'm already into De Palma, but I watched that movie, and I honestly can't believe that he pulled it off. And I don't think it's that derivative of anything. I think that's a pretty unique experience. Oh, yeah, I, it is. It very much is. Michael, who's your second director? This was really hard to figure out because um, there are just so many ways you can go. Do I talk about a filmmaker who was influential at a certain time when I was first really thinking about art cinema? Or do I pick a filmmaker who I've since disavowed in some way? Or do I pick a filmmaker that I'm so indifferent to now that to talk about him will bore everybody in this room? And that's where I'm going to go. Yay! Um, so not the mi- middle brow is a new low brow. So. You said it first. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Should we all guess a couple who it weeks is? Ago. Yeah. I was thinking, of, 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 so it's not going to be Sang Ming Liang, who I really wanted to talk about. It's not going to be Spike Lee, who I still think is really interesting. It's Oliver Stone. And really just for a handful of films. But those films which were important to me when I was of a certain young age, um, specifically JFK, Nixon, and Natural Born Killers. At Born on the Fourth of July, I also loved at the time. And I thought Platoon was excellent, but I didn't watch it very much because why would kids watch Platoon a lot? Oliver Stone is somebody who I just have no time for anymore. I mean, he's awful now. His he book, was on yeah, the, the podcast, sorry. I, I mean, I would, let me put it this way. Other filmmakers <laughs> I may have talked about Again, Spike Lee mm-hmm. or Woody Allen, filmmakers who I still I will still watch every movie they make. Oliver Stone movies I don't even watch anymore, and that's I think kind of a big statement, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what he was doing back then was really interesting. I think that JFK specifically for a film that in many ways is wildly offensive, for a film that in many ways is kind of technically obvious and um and 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 kind of like wears its own idiocy on its sleeve a lot of the time um it's an incredibly daring hollywood film i mean Mm -hmm. it's a film that's completely fabricated and it's from like the mind of its maker Mm -hmm. and I, i mean you can't talk about that film without thinking about the thought processes and psychologies of the man who made it and that he was able to get a studio and thousands of people to aid and abet him in this project is extraordinary and it's a thrilling movie to watch it's a th- i had never seen a film that looked or felt like that and i think we still probably haven't seen a film like that i think nixon um built upon the aesthetic choices and made a much more um rigorous and emotional experience and i still really like nixon i think it's kind of like the height of what he can do I think Joan Allen has a lot to do with that Mm. Um, because she's so amazing in that film. Yeah, the great Joan Allen. And Anthony Hopkins is quite extraordinary, actually. But does not bother to sound like Nixon. Which is what's great about it. Exactly. And the reason I think of Natural Born Killers in that grouping is because, again, he's it's like he's making these little x-rays of his brain of when (laughs) when he was making thinking about them and then making the films. And I can't really think of any other American filmmaker who is like that exactly. He wasn't just um, trying to form scripts around characters that he thought might be interesting, right? He was plumbing some crazy depths of his psyche and soul, and he got it on the screen over and over again in the 90s. And that's a very fertile period for him. And I'm consistently amazed by those films. What happened to him is probably as simple as he got the demons out and now he's just trying to figure out what else to do because people tell him he's still a filmmaker. 
makes those crappy documentaries. And then he makes these like that movie Savages. I didn't see that, but I mean, why, he's making these. That every movie once in a while, he makes insane. these movies. I mean, U Turn was <laughs> the beginning of the end, right? Yeah. I don't yeah. know if it, did anyone see Savages. I it did. Looked so dreadful. You did. No, I did not see it. Oh. Uh, somebody I went on a date with described it to me and was like, <laughs> "I really wish you would have seen it." I would love to hear what you said. I'm like, I'm glad I didn't waste two hours of my fucking life I on that I have to shit. go right now. Yeah. Oh, my God. Born Killers. I did not see him after that. Yeah. <laughs> that was the last yeah. date. <laughs> Born Killers was uh, 94, the same year as Pulp Fiction. And I know I said earlier, 93 was like the big turning point year for me. Mm-hmm. Um, 94 was a continuation of that because uh, seeing Pulp Fiction and Natural Born Killers um, were both pretty seismic mm-hmm. for me. Um, and Natural Born Killers... Uh, was very frightening to me uh, as a young movie watcher. And also because, again, I saw it with my entire family. How odd is that? And we're all sitting there in the audience taking in these shocking images. And they weren't just shocking. They were were fragmented and they they were almost subliminal. Actually, that kind of unites these three films. He's cutting so much and he's, he's not just showing you something. He's showing you something very, very interior about the thing he's showing you. And when he applied that principle to a horror film, basically, I I know it's also a social media satire, but the violence of that film, that it becomes so deep inside, inside the film and inside the the mind, again, the mind of the maker, not of the characters, it was um, very, very jarring. I've never quite gotten over the experience of watching that movie. And I could pick it apart now I watch it. I could pick it apart scene for scene, but... I don't think you can ever really deny your first experience with a film like that. Mm. So Oliver Stone, he holds a an important place in my in my heart and my brain. But I, if he doesn't make, ever make another movie again, I'll be perfectly happy. <laughs> I'm embarrassed at like the goo eyes I'm making at you during this whole thing because the, the just word for word those three movies and then something like those tenor of their reaction. Um, I was actually kind of scared of all three of them in a way and saw natural born killers with friends in the theater, but then with my whole family on pay-per-view when you used to have to like call a number and then they would release it onto channel 98 for like a window. And, and so that was a case of my family having heard me say all these excited things about something that then when they watched, they were kind of worried. Um, but but the genuine risk taking of of those movies, Nixon, I've seen like five or six times. I think it's just amazing and kind of in that, not exactly the Jackie Brown thing, but kind of like it's incredible that this all came together for one movie that should be plenty to hang a career on. Like if, you know, if he just made that, much less these three, I think it makes him a pretty important figure, even though it's so dismaying, just the sheer mediocrity recently. Um, but... And and the fact, and and I know it's not always about this, but the fact that audiences really showed up, um, especially for JFK, but even to sit in in a huge theater with tons of people and watch something as like overtly gangrenous as natural born killers and watch people next to you, not have the same reaction that you're having, that your own reaction was changing from moment to moment. Um, and you talked about the cutting, but the, the sheer amount of superimposing in that movie, especially, but maybe in all three of them, um, it did feel like somebody willing to be way out on a lot of edges. Right. And also thinking back on Nixon, I'm watching this movie at age 16, I guess. And this is very heady, complex and historically confusing material for a teenager who didn't yeah. live through that period. 
but I was enraptured from the beginning to the end of this three and a half hour film. Yeah. It brings history to life in a very singular way. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a huge feat. Mm-hmm. Huge. I, I don't, I can't think of anyone else who's done that. I mean, the, the kind of filmmaking that's generally prized as historical filmmaking is like the stately quiet, almost like, you know, like Spielberg's Lincoln, mm-hmm. Bridge of Spies, you know, films that, that, and I, and I love those films where, you know, all the president's men, if you want to talk about Watergate, mm. movies that kind of unspool the events with a at a dignified um, pace, right? Mm-hmm. So you can you get all the necessary information and there isn't too much aesthetic push. You know, Oliver Stone goes against all those principles. Um, you know, Nixon is a film of as much paranoia and anger as JFK, mm-hmm. which is a film that, was, that all it is is paranoia, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's why it did so well. I'm sorry. Like yeah. Americans are super paranoid. Like, we JFK. Love, yeah. Yeah. And conspiracy theories. Everybody loves that. Right. And Nixon did not do as well. Right. Because it kind of t- took the principle and put it onto a, a semi biopic form. Right, right. And, and, and it was um, strangely also sympathetic. Mm-hmm. to Richard Nixon. And also maybe not what to release on Christmas as made by Disney. You know, like there are a lot of things. <laughs> Plus I think people's sheer refusal to say, I would like one for Nixon is different from like, I would like a ticket to yeah. JFK, you know, but. I mean, what's more disappointing than just like the mediocrity of what he makes now is just that the way in which it undoes his earlier work. There's something very strangely patriotic about Snowden where it's like, he is treating him in a way that's like, this guy is a traitor. And like, I think that's a very bad message to send to people. Like, I understand this is a biopic and, uh, you know, maybe in order to get uh, rights to show the American flag or whatever, you have to make it seem like he's a traitor, but come on, like, <laughs> that can't be true. I know. I know that you have to, you do have to have your scripts about the U S army approved by the U S army. Otherwise you can't use those uniforms, which yeah. is why maybe, uh, Starship Troopers is a better movie about uh, U.S. foreign policy than um, anything else that's come out of Hollywood. But so I will talk about my final filmmaker. So in college, I was bitten by the Antonioni bug. Saw Red Desert, totally moved by it. And so that really sent me on a course of like really getting into other art film. And generally, I, I as I was thinking, as I was preparing for this podcast, I was trying to think of directors from around that time that I saw one and I just really wanted to dive into their all of their work. And generally it was more like genres. Like I would be like, okay, I'm going to try and like know as much as I can about film noir. I'm going to learn as much as I can about, you know, Bollywood movies of this period. But the one one filmmaker that will always stand out for me is I love this director's work and I need to know more about him as soon as possible was Abbas Kiristami. And the first one was 10, which is, you know, an interesting formal experiment, but also, again, this very early period of digital video, how crappy it looked, how raw it was, was just sort of like very out of place. And um, just how, I mean, now this is a cliche just to have the camera in very close, tight, in on somebody's face, very tight and close and just stay there relentlessly and just sort of follow that and then break it up by having them go be very, 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 very distant. But that film was just such a, such a revelation. And then seeing, you know, the Coquer trilogy, the little variations, just how 
beautiful those are. Where's the friend's home? Like all of this, it was just, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to describe like how much it meant to me. I had that same experience when it was Taste of Cherry that launched it. But, oh, yeah. Um, Taste of Cherry. Oh, yeah. Oh, how could I not mention Taste of Cherry? Just like, there's just so many, there's just so much like casual beauty. Yeah. Like when the, the dirt is falling and a shadow is on the dirt. Like, Absolutely. Oh. Taste of Cherry was also my first. It was probably because of the timing of that. It was the Palm yeah. Door winner. It was 97. It, it was, was in right a theater to see. Yeah. Um, that was, yeah, that was the gateway. Yeah. One of the, one of the most hilarious Roger Ebert reviews. Oh God. Where he just, just like a, does not fucking get it at all. What, did, what was his, his star sticking rating? up for not getting it in a way. You know? <laughs> what, what was, what was his star rating? I'm sorry to ask. No. Yeah. He's holding up one finger. By the <laughs> yeah. Way. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, I haven't reconciled myself to audio. It's not it's, the middle finger. Yeah. 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 Because you can see that. Yeah. Listener. Um, one star. Yes. Yeah. So, like Dead Man, Dead Man. You could make up ornate well. thoughts and justify a take on this, but no one would actually ever want to watch it. I mean, it's just a, a total departure from self. It's an inexplicable piece of writing. But right. I both felt like the, the sheer austerity, even though I, I actually relate to that movie as being quite warm and lots of other things as well, and deeply empathetic. But having gotten so excited about people like Campion and Scorsese, like none of that suggested that I would be have like my socks blown off by something that spare. Yeah. Um, and it was just so obviously too the biggest, um, immediately felt difference between everything I had been prompted to think or know about a nation or a culture and what was being proffered to my field of awareness and the sheer irreconcilability of that mm -hmm. just changed, not just the way I watched movies, but that was a huge just before and after of the way I understood the world and my responsibilities to it and knowing what I think I know and admitting what I clearly don't know anything about. And yeah, every single one of his films has repaid that. Yeah. And watching close up for the first time is, was um, very interesting, not just because it was so clearly brilliant and because I'd never seen anything like it before, but because, um, it was a, it's a film that I don't think I could ever recreate the experience of what that felt like. I've, I've seen close up, I don't know, three or four times at this point. I would say anyone who's really interested in cinema has hopefully seen close up more than once. <laughs> um, but I've never liked it as much as that first time. And I don't mean like as in, I, I know it's, it's one of the great masterpieces. I really believe that, but seeing it for the first time really knocked my socks off. I don't, that kind of meta cinematic discourse yeah. had never quite been done in that way mm -hmm. as I had seen it. I'm in awe of that film actually. And I think, I think it's one of the very few films like Jean Dielman. I think it's one of the very few yeah. films that's really, it just is its own thing. It's singular. Nothing will be like it. Nothing could be like it. And it's like irreproachable. Like there are very few of those kind of like summit film. 2001 is another one, right? There are these yeah. films that just, they're just on their own little peak and nothing comes close. I, and I, and close up is, uh, you know, evidence of a, of a true genius. I'd have to agree with that. I had a very similar response to close up. Also this kind of primal dichotomy between fiction and documentary mm. that, you know, we talk about and we read about, but when I saw that film for the first time, it truly hit home to me. A filmmaker had brought these two things together, but then done so in a, you know, uh, not to uh, uh, mention De Palma again, but there's a certain formal play there in that film. Mm -hmm. It's actually very funny, 
sweet, gentle, but also very serious film. It, it just combines all of these tones. And so that the fiction and documentary, the way they play against each other, that's to me like the benchmark film of how, how, how it uses that particular trope. And so I always think about that film when, when, when I read about films that combine fiction and documentary. But yeah, it's, I, I agree with you. It is an absolute masterpiece on, you know, on a different plane. There are not that many films along with it. Botrava is another film for me that's like so singular. Mm. So it's, it's an, a handful of films in that company. That exact aspect of it is actually why I've almost deliberately only watched it the one time I saw it. And there's something that feels so like if it weren't so exquisite to experience, especially that final moment between Mahlobov and Sabzian, it would be like unbearably embarrassing to be part of that moment. And it feels like there are a few films like that. Vanya on 42nd Street a little bit was this way for me where I related to it so much more as an experience that happened once and has to live as a memory that it would feel kind of weirdly distorting to get to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, or like a, some kind of crazy strange days mistake. Like, no, just let things, <laughs> let things go away. I think I've seen all of his other movies I love a bunch of times, but not that one. It's, and you just called me not serious about film. I mean, I remember what you said. No, but you're actually <laughs> yeah. proving my point. That's yeah. who I get. It's, it's, it's not going to be the same yeah. when you watch it again. It, 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 it's, it's just such a revelatory thing. I want to experience that again. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it. The reason I've seen it so many times is because I am trying to get back to that place. Mm. But I don't know. It's a one, one time only deal. Yeah. And I have to say his later films, like the films that he made outside of Iran, particularly like someone in love, like someone in love. Oh, I loved that. Me too. Me like too. someone in not love. Not that many people oh, did. My God. Yeah, I was not. I did not uh, love it. I, I. But the part where with the grandmother mm-hmm. waiting by the statue was mm-hmm. just like that was excruciating. Yeah. I was just in the t- theater in just losing my mind. I was absolutely gutted by it. And then nothing else that happened in the film could match it now that Mm. is the opposite of close-up that's a film that i've seen three times and it gets better every time i watch it because it's Mm. so what it does is so odd and off-putting and abrupt the first time you watch it that you need another viewing to appreciate what he's doing structurally Mm. i was blown away the second time i saw that film i was puzzled the first time i knew i liked it because i like looking at his frames and i like what he's doing with the camera but the second time it it crystallizes in an emotional way i highly recommend you watch that again well yeah i feel like like you again returning to the stubbed toe motif it's always it's always good to give something you have mixed feelings another shot hot tip free tip (laughs) so before we close let's each go around and say a film that we've seen recently that we liked i went to the metrograph a while back for they did a series about films and that related to episode eight of twin peaks the return and they showed um kiss me deadly 2001 firewalk with me obviously a lot of different films and then they had the shorts program which was the most sadistic but genius shorts program i've ever been subjected to so it started with um this really beautiful glitch art film when if you're not familiar with it it's where somebody glitch art is basically somebody taking like an the pixelization and like distortion that happens with a video file and like taking that and making these beautiful trails. It was like some Barbara Steele movie, probably by Barbara Baba. I couldn't tell what movie it was. It was in black and white. It was just 
beautiful and to this totally amazing sound design. And then the second movie, one of Ken Jacobs' nervous magic lantern films. And so it's it was almost 30 minutes long and it was uh the it was using this very hokey audio from this uh a dramatization of Superman's birth. It's what it's called Krypton is doomed. And it's taking like this very very hokey like 30s radio broadcast of like the destruction of Krypton and doing with this strobing of this you can't tell what it is and like these different shapes come up and it looks sometimes it looks like Jesus on the cross or like being taken off of the cross and then other times it looks like slaves on a farm like a Kara Walker painting and then the in because it's this very intense strobing effect there are times when he just makes the screen black and in those moments, because you've been watching this for so long, at least for me, it looked like there was smoke rising. It's, it was this illusion that your eyes do. Like it was, it, but it was crazy. I was like, what the fuck is happening? And then right after that was Paul Sherrod's epilepsy movie, his short, which was, which shows two different types of seizures, three different ways where it's just flashing colors at you or black and white and then both at you. We were we were speaking of sadistic in my there was first, still two more <laughs> in my first ever freshman year cinema studies class without warning they made us watch Paul Sherritt's and I had to run to the bathroom mm-hmm. because I almost threw up during yeah. it and I, I like his I like his work oh yeah no me it, too but, it was, but without for a lot of people I'm sure in that audience too without warning. It's definitely um, an experience unlike any other. Well, here's the thing. So, like, my boyfriend was like, oh, you really should go see... I really want to see the shorts program. I was like, okay. And I didn't realize that they would be all together. I didn't realize... <laughs> and, like, before we went down, I was like, oh, wait, Paul Sherritt's... Wait, which one is it? <laughs> and then and then tons and tons of people left the theater. They just could not handle it. It was, like, um, high-intensity interval training for your eyeballs. And then there was, like, a very short... Chris Marker film, one minute long. And then it went to this great Bruce Connor movie where it was this woman just sort of like twisting and dancing around very frenetically. And it was sort of like uh, the apparition in um, the first episode of Twin Peaks. It, it was still kind of challenging to your eyes after so much strobing and just eyeballs are great. And I think it's, it's very interesting to watch movies that or when filmmakers make something that is literally just challenging to you on a physical level of light reaching your eyes. So good job, Ken Jacobs. So this was your answer to a film you enjoyed recently. This was, this is like a series. I did enjoy the challenge. I did enjoy the challenge. That was a journey. Just listening to that. Someone should do that again. Someone should, this should be a traveling exhibition. (laughs) (laughs) I think all, I mean, all the films in this, in the inspired by episode eight series were great. My love affair this summer was with Atomic Blonde. Which, oh my god, I loved it! Oh my god! <laughs> so um, yeah, and I hadn't even felt a huge nudge to go see it, and then I just mm-hmm. you know happened to read a couple pieces by people I really admire who made it sound like this shouldn't be missable. So I think I attached it as like the thing I would see before something else that was really my errand for the mm-hmm. day, and I just saw it a second time, like right before I came here, and. I just am electrified by everything that movie does. You're nodding so vigorously. So it seems like we're on a team here. Yes, totally. Um, The fights are insane. The fights are 
unbelievable and each notably different from each other. Mm -hmm. And I think I've gotten so inured to thinking of Cold War depictions as either thinking of that coldness as not corporeal at all and mm -hmm. just people having attitudes about each other from opposite sides of the world or when it's actiony it's a little borny and to actually watch people's bodies kind of on the line in the way that movie continually does yeah. and watch them scrap out the cold war mm -hmm. um is pretty stunning in a sort of genre way but just sonically visually i loved everything about that film yeah okay. it Feels like it should have had the discourse that Baby Driver got and oh, to yeah. me utterly didn't deserve. But like that sort of loomed Baby in Driver our... Baby Driver made me stop wanting to watch movies. Yeah. Like I, 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 I may have given up yeah. for like a week or two. I felt like this kind of fulfilled a lot of things that were sort of nakedly stated as ambitions by Baby Driver. But this did all those and then did all this other stuff. Yeah. And also it has Charlie's fucking thrown it. Yeah. Respect. If all of the action movies she does are like this consistently good. If they turn this into a franchise, if they because it's like, it's the female bond. And it's like, it is in the sense where it's like constantly towing this line between this is so cool and this is totally fucking stupid, ridiculous. Here's Till Tuesday Voices Carrie. Like all that stuff. Twice. Twice. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like movies that, that try to go after a cultivated graphic novel facsimile mm -hmm. either die totally on that hill and it's just inert from the outset mm -hmm. um, or they just don't feel evocative of it. And this managed to just feel like reading a comic book without seeming like it was straining for that. Yeah. It was just the background of everything else it was doing. But mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I bought you guys a lot of time. <laughs> okay. This is going to be very different from the examples that we just heard. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, as anything I, would be. <laughs> true. So this summer I went to Ritrovato, the uh, festival in Bologna. It's uh, lots of great old films there. But one film that I've not been able to shake from there is Frank Berzaghi's Little Man, What Now? Oh. from 1934 with Margaret Sullivan. And this film is um, incredible for so many reasons. Um, I just love the idea of this mainstream Hollywood film that everybody was watching in the country uh, you know, that particular week or month, being so fully engaged with things that were going on in the country at that time is this anti-fascist film made in the mid-30s, mm. only like a year after Hitler came to power in Germany. And uh, it's set in Europe. And um, it, just everything about the film. So Berzegi's, the way he shoots people, there's this incredible love of humanity and human beings that kind of comes through even in these kind of documentary portraits of people. And so um, Borzegi's attitude to the material, to the open way in which socialism is discussed in the film, mentioned, celebrated, and political debate is kind of celebrated in the film. It's a kind of America that um, it would be great to have today in mainstream cinema, where we're talking about politics openly and characters are discussing the stuff as if all options are on the table. Mm. And, and so there's so much that's occluded in the mainstream cinema of today that it can, this makes me nostalgic for a time when you could talk about lots of things in cinema. It came one year after Borzegi's Man's Castle, right? Which right, was so incredible. engaged with yeah, the time period. I mean, that's right. in terms of just the, the representation of Shantytown, USA. I mean, that is unforgettable, that film. My film, also different from all of yours, is, for the first time ever, I recently saw William Friedkin's Sorcerer. Yes. Which 
is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I say this as someone who's not particularly a William Friedkin fan. And that's probably one of the reasons why I took so long to see it. I'm glad that I did because I got to see it on the big screen because it played it at, uh, at the wall on the Walter Reed Film Society. And I was completely enthralled. I can't believe what a massive folly it might have been. I guess which people thought it was when it came out because it was such a flop because um, it was the first film that Friedkin had made after The Exorcist. So mm-hmm. people were, you know, on tenterhooks waiting to see what he would do next. Um, and it's such a far superior film in so many ways. And it's, it's a remake of Rages of Fear, a film that I also have always lo- loved since I first saw it maybe 15 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, I also thought to myself, okay, so I don't really care for Friedkin that much and I do not want to see a remake of The Wages of Fear yeah. because how could you possibly improve upon it? But it becomes its own thing. It is so visually astonishing. It is so narratively complex. Roy Scheider, once again, one of the absolute greats. And I just can't get the image of that truck crossing that tiny, tiny rope bridge out of my head. I don't know how it was achieved. I know that it's possibly the most ludicrous thing that I'd ever seen in an American yeah. film and I don't care because that's movies. And that's, the sound of it too, that yeah, truck. Yeah. Holy that, shit. This movie was really it blew me away. But that uh the truck crossing of course referenced in what? The Mr. Plow episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> really? Really. Does that it is, go over a, a, a small yeah, and bridge? And they do like a Tangerine Dream like music too oh, as he's oh. driving over I have to the go thing. back and watch that episode. <laughs> pretty it's pretty great like i said the simpsons lingua franca of our age but thank you all for coming this was (laughs) epic thank you so much freaking epic thank you violet (laughs) yeah this is a blast thanks so much you've been listening to the film comment podcast produced by violet luca and nicholas rapold with music by greg anji you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play or stitcher Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle, at filmcomment.com slash app.